Section 23 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 2, Chapter 5, Part 2. 3. A happier thing came when Carl Nilsson one day suggested that Joanna should go riding with him. In her immediate, joyful agreement, she certainly had Lewis again in mind, but she had also in mind her beloved rough-coated pony of the Duntarvi days. The idea in itself, that is, was congenial. Here was something far better worth spending one's money upon than anything to be had in the shops. An extravagance in clothing one's body appeared suddenly as a bore and a vulgarity to be dropped with Lynette's friends. And after a few lessons in the great brown befogged riding school which smelt of tan and ammonia, and echoed like a bath with raised voices and the thud of hoofs, Joanna became a good enough horsewoman. As she hastened to the mounting place, her heart would flutter in her breast with delight. Her shining face on horseback often made Nilsson look at her with his sidelong, inquisitive gaze that was yet all friendliness, but when she asked him what was wrong, he would only smile, praise her seat, and watch her cheeks brighten still more. Henceforward she had few happier hours than those in which Carl and she went riding into the country together. Sometimes they would not start till Carl had done his morning's work, and on these days they would soberly jog out fifteen miles or so, probably in the direction of Killern, alighting there at an inn for a dish of steak and onions better than any other steak and onions in the world. At other times they would wait until the later afternoon and go simply for a gallop in the fields about Mulgay, but Joanna liked it best on a Saturday for then they could start very early, posting through the dark and misty autumn dawns, and pushing their way up through sopping little woods to high ground that they might canter forward to meet the rising sun. And it was after these rides that they went in just as they were, glowing and bespattered with mud and dew, to Sangster's for what Carl called a hunter's breakfast, porridge with cream, kidneys and bacon, toast and bops, and special coffee, with a bottle of graves to stand by. They were really merry, these hunter's breakfasts, Though a table was kept apart for the riders, they always took possession of the place, half empty at that hour, with their rollicking spirits, and the waitresses seemed to participate. Carl had a ringing laugh that made the other late breakfasters or early lunchers turn their heads. So it was that tales went round, and one day Eva Gedge reported the affair to Julie in such a manner that Julie unwillingly felt it laid upon her to remonstrate with Joanna. We ought, she said, to avoid the appearance of evil. She herself knew her children too well to listen for a moment to foolish gossip. But, dear Joanna must remember that she was still young and a widow, and it had pleased God to give her good looks beyond the average. At this most rare parental allusion to outward appearances, Joanna stared. But she only kissed her mother with reassuring affection and went on her way. The stables from which they hired their horses had been private at one time to a family mansion. This still stood at some distance the stables being on the outskirts of the grounds at a far corner, empty these several years, and now waiting, blackly and squarely forlorn, for its demolition. But for some reason its surrounding gardens had been kept carefully tended, and especially before the early morning rides when the grass and bushes were still grey with dew, Joanna keenly enjoyed the shortcut which might be made by passing diagonally across the sloping longs and shrubberies. It was on one of these mornings that a new element was added to her pleasure in riding. There had been a hoar-frost the night before, whitening the grass, the trees, the high walls and railings, and Joanna crossing by herself to the stables with her skirt held up, left a trail of dark footprints behind her. There were no other tracks, so she knew she was the first to arrive. 
She could hear the groom chirruping beyond the stable wall, and the noise of nervous hoofs on the cobbles as he saddled the hacks, sounds that usually made her quicken her pace with an eager springing forward of her whole body. But on this morning she continued to walk slowly and without looking about her. She was absorbed entirely in the news received the night before, that Lewis was on his way back to Glasgow. He was returning after a longer absence than usual, returning from Paris. She would see him the next day. His letter, full of devotion and hunger for her, was between her breasts at this moment, pressed close there by her buttoned-up riding coat, and her heart was contracted with desperate longing and fear and joy. But somebody was shouting her name. It was Carl, lowered down in the garden behind her. She smiled automatically and turned round with a friendly gesture of greeting. This, however, was arrested midway, and her uplifted hand in its leather glove, clutching a little riding switch, dropped quickly to her side again. For Carl was not alone. Lawrence Urquhart was with him and dressed for riding. Joanna was angered. As the two men came towards her, crisping with their boots through the short, brittle grass, she blamed first Lawrence, then Carl, and she met them with a blank face. Lawrence might, thought she, have kept away. He must know how impossible it was to carry out in practice his suggested friendship. The strain and futility of their few meetings during the past year, it was now eighteen months since his mother's death, should have convinced him of that. And since the last meeting, so long a time had elapsed that she had fancied him sensible to the situation. But here he was again, and now the rides would be spoiled. As for Carl, he was still more to blame than Lawrence. Carl, knowing as she was sure he did, about Lewis, had deliberately invited Lawrence to join them. It was wicked of Carl. No wonder he did not care to meet her gaze as he explained volubly that Urquhart had been having some lessons and only needed company to complete his enjoyment in the sport. And to this tale, Lawrence assented with a simplicity which astonished Joanna almost out of her anger. He had kept his dark eyes on her face while Carl spoke, smiling with a lively but baffling candor of pleasure. There was a perfect understanding between these two male beings that was like a conspiracy against her, and she resented it all the more that they were both so incomprehensible to her. Incomprehensible they remained, but they had not ridden far with her before she recovered her good humor and forgave them more than forgave them. After all, sang her quickened blood when they had got their beasts out of town and she was giving her companions a pounding lead, round the gallop at the waterworks, after all they both knew how things were, and if they still liked to be in her company, it was of their own choice. Before starting upon another breakneck round, she stole a look at Lawrence. He was only a tolerable rider, but on horseback, as in the dance, he escaped from his nervousness, and was enjoying the exercise with a curious kind of still excitement. Though he used no enthusiastic expressions of pleasure, Joanna knew that he had entered with her and with Carl into the spirit of the morning. A dark radiance emanated from him. Soon, a ride was not complete without him. 4. To Lewis, Joanna made the most of these rides, and it pleased her to find that he was both envious, himself no horseman, and too old, he said, to learn, and jealous of her company. So now, by severance, was she learning to bind him to her. The deep appeal for uncalculating union had failed. The sensual appeal was erratic. Now she was discovering a new emulative relation in which the balance of power was re-established in her favor. Once, laughing, Lewis had told her of a Frenchman who, when asked if he believed in platonic friendship between man and woman, replied, Mais oui, après. And undoubtedly, as time went on, more and more of their hours together were hours of sheer friendliness, especially on the part of Lewis. The suffering of these friendly hours fell to Joanna, but she braced herself to bear it as something inevitable. She could bear anything, thought she, seeing Lewis at peace, 
and he was often curiously peaceful in such hours. With the paintings he did of her, he remained dissatisfied, and he would not finish any. But he was constantly begging her to sit. "'It is strange,' he exclaimed one day. "'I always get you better when I draw you from memory. Look at this!' and he showed Joanna a brilliant little figure drawing he had done quite without notes when he was in Paris. "'There is your very self,' he declared, satisfied for once. "'Your movement. See that bold, beautiful action of the thigh? That is you, more you than the eyes in your head. And I hope you admire the articulation of the knees, the fineness. See there, as it also is yours, my pretty one, more yours than the nose on your face. Not that the face is so bad in the drawing either, mind you. I've got you there too, I think.' But of course the figure's the thing here. That's as I saw you the day we took bread and cheese down to Loch Katrine. Do you remember? And I dared you to bathe. I'll not forget how you looked, Joanna, running out to the water from under those little hazel trees. I do believe I'll go on to my dying day drawing you as you looked to me then. Yet Lewis did not offer her the drawing, and he took no notice when she said she would love to have it. She puzzled over this. At home, unknown to him, she had a letter-case crammed with the treasured pen or pencil sketches with which her lover habitually illustrated his talk. Scrawls done hastily on the backs of envelopes, on fly-leaves, torn out of books, on any scrap of paper that came handy. But a serious drawing he had never given her, and there was no other material gift she could have wished to have from him. She had indeed been always deeply pleased, if also a little piqued, at his oblivion on the subject of presents. She had liked it that in their goings about he would let her pay her share of things, for somehow she had known that he was not mean. She also knew that in spite of the sums he was now earning, sums that seemed enormous to her when he mentioned them, he was often really short of money. His personal habits were of the simplest, yet he was continually harassed by debt of which he had a puritanical hatred. He had told her frankly that his London household was maintained in a manner beyond his means. But all this was no reason why he should refuse her the drawing she so wanted, and she now begged for it, rather timidly. Lewis looked at her and moved his eyes away again. "'My wife hates me to part with any of my stuff,' he said. "'She has some kind of notion that it is her due, that if I were to die she would be provided for by having everything that wasn't sold in the usual way. "'As we live, you see, I can't save a halfpenny. She is queer about it, perhaps, but there it is. One way and another I owe her a great deal, and as I've been pretty filthy to her on the whole, I feel I must defer to her in this.' A chasm gaped in the little silence that followed. With his first words, Joanna had suffered a hideous sinking of spirit. The very tones of his voice seemed echoing in response to some unsuspected hollowness in the world. She had a picture of her lover stamping with shamefaced bravado upon a vault in which his own dead body lay. Involuntarily, she shut her eyes for a second. But she gave no other sign or word. She never again asked him for a drawing. There were times when she felt she possessed him most in absence. When he was away, he was in all she did, and she had increasing certitude that he felt his life vitalized by her. Never a letter-writer before, he had acquired, unasked, the habit of writing to her constantly and at length. He wrote from London, from Paris, from New York, from Moscow, flowing letters like his speech, and interspersed with drawings of people and things that had caught his fancy. As his wife hated traveling, he generally made his journeys alone. His handwriting came to affect Joanna like his bodily presence, made her tremble through her being when her eye lighted upon it, and in return she filled her letters to him with spontaneous but not wholly artless glamour. She knew so well these days how to pique and interest him that it cost her no effort, was indeed a keen excitement and enjoyment. And their meetings became more like their letters, less stormy, less dependent on passion, 
except that in his presence Joanna played her part heavily burdened. Yet she believed it was a part worth playing. She had always one tale to tell, another tale to hear, and Lewis reveled lightheartedly in the exchange. He often questioned whether they would have got one tithe of the fun and charm. Out of their experiences had these been matrimonially shared. The deadliest dinner party, he declared, became diverting when he had to describe it to her, and the most commonplace events of her life, when she recounted them to him, were bathed in a light that never was by sea or land. This, then, was their solution for the time. From their two years as lovers they emerged as two distinct and separate streams of existence. Momentarily they might and did flow as one, but they were never so much in unison as when they flowed apart, each sweeping outwards round a rich individual curve, each rushing in an opposite direction, but ever onwards, and ever with a gathering impetus towards the next brief mingling. 5. Meanwhile, life in La France quadrant became every day more difficult. The business of housekeeping, even for so small a family, was too much now for Julie. She went weighed down with it, and people in the street looked askance at her unslept face and dragging gait. She had her being in a cruel trough of muddle, released only when sleep overcame her, or when she could pray aloud with a companion and so keep sleep at bay while she cried for succor. But she was vigorous still. She could not live in the house and see herself superseded by a daughter. At the utmost, she would apportion only certain vague duties to Joanna, and even here she was continually changing and fault-finding. At odd times, exasperating to one with work of her own to consider, she would make desperate appeals for daughterly help. Yet if Joanna tried unobtrusively to take some of the burden off her weary, indomitable shoulders, she was apt to resent it. A companion she would not hear of. Treating me like a child or an idiot in my own house, she exclaimed at the bare suggestion, and she would repeat the saying common with her, better to wear out than rust out. Both the remaining children knew that a change in their way of living would have to be made, and made soon. But what change? And how bring it about? In the frequent debates between them and their mother, each was prompted by a secret personal desire, and these desires were in conflict. Lynette longed to be in rooms of his own. Joanna was heading for London. Julie did not know what she wanted. Pierced as she was by the knowledge that her children wished to be gone from her, she yet clung to the familiar. She fought against any acknowledgement that it was failing her at every point. But in March came the tidings that Georgie was engaged to a young man of whom she had made mention continually for two years past, a London doctor named Max Weiler, and at La France Quadrant, the announcement was hailed with a special excitement. Apart from its ordinary interest, it introduced a new and unexpected element into the family situation. At the least, it would bring about an immediate and, as it were, official family conclave. For Georgie was coming home at once to be married. Max, she wrote, strongly disapproved of long engagements, and with her and her beloved, a eugenist, she said he was, coming fresh to the problem, it was felt that some solution was imminent. And at about the same time, cousin Mabel proposed a long visit. Mabel had been married for several years now in India, but on this, her first visit home was without her husband. Why should not Mabel also, knowing them all as she had done since childhood, have a voice in the Bannerman Council? Mabel did. She arrived looking as pretty and as shifty as ever, the East had hardly affected her peach-bloom complexion, and she was full of stories that proved how besottedly her husband was in love with her. Careful she was, too, to ask what had become of Bob Rankin. Subtly, she smiled when she heard that he prospered and that Joanna still had an occasional letter from him. And from the first, Mabel was loud in her applause of the fine new family plans which Georgie and her Max had evolved between them, 
plans which were based on the separately confidential letters Georgie had lately received from Joanna, Lynette, and her mother. An astute man, this Max, Jewish by the irony of fate, beautifully considerate and understanding with Julie, giving her a new lease of life by permitting her to regard him in the light of a possible convert, charming her with his persuasive tongue, his oriental, intelligent eyes, and exercising to the full upon her that magnetism which only his enemies designated as the making of a clever charlatan. Clearly, even to his enemies, a future lay ahead of this tall and willowy young Hebrew with the curly black beard, and how his Georgie adored him. Unfolded, his plans were these. Joanna was to have her wish and go to London, absurd that she should neglect the chances of work now offering there, but she was to go, not merely, not even primarily, on her own account. She was to be a forerunner. With Georgie married in London, the mother, too, would surely have to make her home there before long. She must, of course, take her own time, and while Joanna was finding her feet, and at the same time keeping her eyes open for a suitable house, say in Hampstead, Georgie and he were to be in the garden suburb, no doubt Mrs. Bannerman would be glad to see Lynette comfortably settled in Glasgow, where his lot was cast. For the present, a holiday from housekeeping was essential. What was to prevent Mrs. Bannerman from spending the coming six months with her friend Eva? Had it not been her lifelong desire to devote herself to mission work? Her children were now men and women. God had given her energy and leisure. Many years of usefulness doubtless lay before her. In London of all places, later on, when her strength was restored, she could make her choice of congenial work. How simple it all seemed, after all. Delightful. And so full both of common sense and piety. Mabel was almost melting in her admiration of each point. Joanna and Lynette rejoiced silently in their different degrees. Georgie looked unspeakably proud and possessive of the new genius who had deigned to confer himself on her family. Julie alone was doubtful and had qualms, but even she had to agree in a measure. Might not her doubts spring from lack of faith? She thought of the children her own eldest-born was sure to bear to this man, black-eyed, curly-haired babes with the blood of Abraham in their tender bodies, and deep within her soul the old hopes stirred afresh. Georgie's wedding was a bourgeois but very happy affair in the drawing-room. A suitable minister had at first been something of a difficulty. Unfortunately, Julie at the moment was in that particular stage of progression between two churches which debarred her from asking a favor of the pastor of either. And it had of course to be explained that the new son-in-law was not more than tolerant at present of the Christian religion. A young missionary, however, who had just arrived at home on a holiday from Constantinople, was prevailed upon to officiate, and after that all went smoothly. Max certainly behaved beautifully. At the way he kissed Julie's hand after the simple ceremony, Mrs. Boyd shed tears of joy, and seeing this, the bridegroom proceeded gallantly to kiss hers also, bending his long, elegant waist before her as if she were a queen. Even the laconic Lynette who gave Georgie away had to admit that his brother-in-law was a very decent chap, and clever by God. And some at least of the schemes suggested by Max and March were being carried out in practice three months later. By June it was actually decided that Joanna should go to London. The other changes would follow, though not, to Lynette's mortification, at once. His mother, after many prayerful but not wholly satisfactory colloquies with Ava, had decided to stay on with him until such time as a temporary and very humble niche should be created for her by her friend's kindness in the Lady Missionary's Training College. Lynette, she said sadly, would have long enough by himself later on. Besides, for the next month or two Mabel was to be at La France Quadrant. Mabel had a year to spend in England, and she wished to devote a good part of that time to dear Aunt Julie. 
and Mabel had succeeded where others had failed, in coaxing Julie to hand over all the housekeeping for a few weeks at least. 6. Before she left, Joanna called on Carl Nilsson to say goodbye. Louis, for some months past, had been in London, and with Femi gone, Carl was the only person in Glasgow to whom she could really speak. The little, grizzled artist looked rather sharply at her as, with a sense of dejection, she sat down on her own special chair in the studio, the same chair on which Femi had perched on the afternoon of their first meeting. But for some minutes they only spoke of Femi. On first reaching New Zealand, things had gone hard with her, and she had been ill, but that she was happy, deeply fulfilled in her marriage, both her friends were assured by the tone of her letters. And Urquhart? Had Joanna had word lately of Urquhart at all? asked Carl presently. He was passed over, you know, he told her, for the folklore lectureship about two months ago. Yes, an outsider got it. Had she not heard? But Joanna had heard nothing. It was three months or more, Carl must remember, since their last ride in his company. Didn't Carl recall it? His horse had gone lame, and Lawrence and she had had to leave him behind at Mulgay. She had never ridden since that day. She had been saving all her money for London. As if that were the reason, said Carl's eyes, and she had heard and seen nothing of Lawrence since that day. She was sorry about his disappointment. And well may you be sorry, Signora Madonna, agreed Carl, looking as if he would gladly shake her. I'm sorry, too, to have lost my pleasantest companion in Glasgow. Many a night has he sat where you sit now, talking with me till four in the morning. Many the good bottle we have emptied, too, rearranging the world. Where, what, has he gone to London, then? faltered Joanna with misgiving. No, Carl returned shortly, rising from his place. No, you needn't be afraid. He's in Oxford, not in London, yet. He has gone to scrub, as he calls it, for Manson, the anthropologist who soon brings out the last volume of Arcana Promethea. You have heard of the Arcana, perhaps? A truly encyclopedic work on the evolution of culture. For Urquhart, I'm glad enough, though sorry for myself. It is work to suit him. He was in the marsh here, the slough, you call it, stuck and stagnant. There he may find his rock bottom. But Joanna, oh, my poor stupid Joanna, and all for a man that's as dead as dead. Pfft. At the onslaught, so unexpected and severe, Joanna flushed painfully and avoided her friend's shrewd gaze. In her heart, there could be no misunderstanding of his words. The dead man he had spoken of was not Mario, not her dead husband. His words, too, had forced her to recall a confusing but vexing memory. She was compelled to relive the last ride which, owing to a mischance, had been taken alone in Lawrence's company. She saw again the muddy country lanes, darkness, the humid air of evening, and they framed the bitterness of a young man wounded in his manhood. She winced again under his reproaches. From below the hoofs of their horses, the thick, glistening mud had flown up at them, blackening the belly of Lawrence's tall, whitish hack, and above them the dripping trees had bent over the road like the wires of a steel trap. How she had longed to escape from him and forget. And she had escaped, was going to forget. But it was hateful that Lawrence had sat in this very chair and had talked about her to Carl. She was never to see or think of Lawrence again. She was sorry, of course, that he had failed to get his lectureship. But she was glad, glad now without a single regret, that she was going to London. There would be no Carl there to reproach her no Lawrence to love and accuse her, there would only be Lewis. She would go her own way. No one should stop her. End of section 23. Recording by Courtney Miller.